friends and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Spasciano, joined as always by the BS Express himself, Benny Scala. Benny, how you doing, buddy? Dan, this is the time where I normally come out with a hideous joke about either dating or hookers or some obscure baseball reference about a pitcher named Chichi Olivo. But I, I want to digress from that. And just I just want to say thank you to everybody who listens to us or you know interacts on our podcast page. It's it's been a great ride. I think we're going on 15 months now, and it just keeps getting better and better. And I think in large part to the people who uh, who listen and and uh, follow our podcast page. I just want to give a big thank you to everyone. Absolutely, and, and this week is the start of season three for the show. We and we have another great year planned. Uh, we're recording this on a Tuesday. It's April 5th. This past week and past weekend. Saw a plethora of wrestling events highlighted by WrestleMania, but also featuring WrestleCon, which is a huge event for wrestling fans, uh, AEW, independent wrestling galore, and the return of Ring of Honor. Uh, which, by the way, side note for anyone who's a fan of classic old school wrestling, I cannot, cannot, cannot recommend enough the tag match for the championships, tag championships between the Briscoes and FTR. Two of the best tag teams in the business today competing in the best classic tag match in years. Uh, no matter what kind of fan of wrestling, or excuse, you know, no matter what kind of wrestling you're a fan of, there was plenty of it to be found this weekend. Uh, I think the highest praise, and we've mentioned them on the show before, uh, you know how critical Jim Cornette is of the current wrestling product. And he commented, his comment on the Briscoes FTR match was, if all wrestling looked like that, he'd still gladly be involved in the business. I don't think it gets higher praise than that. Uh, I mean, so we're getting ready to start season three. Uh, like I said, we got a lot of good stuff planned, um, and we could not be where we are with us. I've mentioned AEW; their their heavyweight champion is trained by the by the boogie boogeyman himself. Our sponsor, Benny. I know uh, we've said not had nothing but good things to say, but for the last year or more about Valiant and, and the Boogie's Wrestling School and and just all the good stuff they've been doing for us, and they've got a lot of good stuff coming up. Uh, Jimmy Valiant wheelie.com and you just check them out on social media they've a lot of events a uh, lot of good matches their big um uh, rumble or excuse me battle royal coming up uh and their school continues to grow and you correct me if i'm wrong benny don't you have an honorary spot in their, I in will their be class there. coming up in the summer october the second and cool. uh with a uh, specially designed vest by jimmy's beautiful wife angel and i'm looking forward to it i hope i don't trip over the ropes when i get in but um yeah not for anything but Anybody who's listening, not only to visit the camp, it's very the, – the cost is, is very low. And if you've had any aspirations of being a professional wrestler, I, I I don't think you would ever regret giving it a shot. You might regret not giving it a shot. Yeah, you can't go wrong with that. I mean, it's – uh you always mention the cost, $250 down, $20 per session. That is beat that. Yeah. pennies on the dollar for anybody that knows anything about the business. That's pennies and, and on the dollar. And you're getting trained by a legend. Exactly. And some of the better, some of the most respected trainers uh, in, in the area. I mean, uh, it's not, and it's not even just the, the school there. I mean, the, the hall of fame museum, it, it's a living shrine that they're building and it's just great stuff to check out. But, um, Speaking of classics, this is the uh, third edition now we've done of yes, Territory sir. Talk. And Benny, why don't you tell us who we got on the line with us yeah, and uh, uh, what we're going to talk about today? 
our resident territory talk territory. Say that ten times fast. Territory talk panelist, um, Jim Phillips, and he's been our guest when we chatted about uh, championship wrestling from Florida, as well as big time wrestling from uh, San Francisco. And tonight we're going to chat about the USWA, the United States Wrestling Association. So our, our welcome guest, Jim Phillips. Jim, welcome back again to Dan and Benny in the Ring. Thank you, my brothers. It's always a pleasure to sit down and chew the fat and talk business with y'all. Um, we did have a really good weekend of wrestling. Let me just go ahead and say that now before we bite off into all this other stuff. And the Hall of Fame, I always enjoy that as well. Uh, good. Glad you mentioned that. I can't believe that slipped my mind. The uh, Undertaker, the Steiner brothers, Vader, some of the some of the most more deserving names. I mean, I know we're critical of it, but some of the more deserving names in recent years. And they gave Scott Steiner a live microphone and nothing bad happened. So that right there is an accomplishment for the weekend. I think I think, I think, I think you have a 66 on standby, though. <laughs> well, you know, you give him a microphone, you have a 66 and two thirds percent chance he's going to say something. Great. Exactly. <laughs> I was hoping that he would I was hoping he would go off on a rip of, of that old. Yeah, I was hoping he would do that. Drop say that. Yeah. And they should Drop have brought some. a Harvard math professor on stage. You just to right. Hash it out with him. Drop some, drop some, uh, some math knowledge. You know, Jim. Before we, before we get into the territory, we chose the USWA because your running segment on pro wrestling stories. You just had a big article on the USWA come out. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, we were trying to align everything with the the big weekend. Austin's making his comeback. Taker's in the Hall of Fame. You know what I mean? Foley went through the territory as well even though Foley got the big taker snub and didn't get mentioned in the speech. But, yeah, we wanted to try and align that with everything that was going on this weekend. And it's one of those tumultuous territories that it's it's just interesting to talk about. So, yeah, we were all looking forward to it. And once again, I got a shout-out to JP. He does an excellent job on the artwork, that big collage. He always puts all that together himself, and we enjoy that process. And he always does a great job. Absolutely. Well, I mean, the uh, you mentioned you, you want to align the USWA, and and as a lot of what we talk about on the show is wrestling history, the USWA kind of doesn't get the, uh, the it's due. It really doesn't get the credit as a significant wrestling promotion. It was kind of the also ran among the, the the greats. The it was you know supposed to be the fourth big dog, and it kind of never quite got to where it was going um, due to I guess probably its brief existence. Uh, but why don't you you talk a little bit? Uh, the, a brief history of the USWA as it was created, why, how, all the all the works. If you really want to get back to the the real roots of the USWA, you got to go back to Super Clash, to when all three of those promotions came together for the big big pay per view that they did, and all brought their different talent together. Now this also should have been a precursor to these guys that maybe it was going to be rough waters business wise because there's rumors that it, the Super Clash. Jarrett was trying to hawk and sign guys out from under Fritz, and Fritz had issues with different other things. But nonetheless, McMahon has taken over the wrestling landscape. The AWA is still holding out. Jim Crockett Promotions is going to morph into WCW, and they're drawing good people. And then Texas, Fritz wasn't ready to give up yet. He wanted to do his own thing, and Lawler was the same way. So Jarrett and Fritz and all these guys came together and brought in the USWA in Texas is where it started out there in Dallas. And it was branched out and they used the WCCW stuff and 
used that as a launching pad. And then Memphis was like a sister organization. It was like a brother-sister type thing. They shared power amongst each other at the beginning. But <clears throat> the money and everything got in the way like it always did. It caused issues. Fritz was saying he was shorted money and whatnot. And it just got, it got ugly. So eventually there was a splitting of the two and the USWA pulled away from the WCCW and it was just, it was a lot of tumultuous stuff going on. There was a lot of talent back and forth. It was almost like an invasion angle of sorts, the way they ended up running it because Lawler was talking down about the other territories and promotions, how he was the unified champion and all the other champions were just company champions and the WCCW folded out and they, they just couldn't, they couldn't stay in with them. So the USWA took over <clears throat> and then they had, when WCCW first came in, they brought in like Mark Lawrence and, uh, I can't think of the other guy's name off the top of my head. I had it written down. They they were the announce team. And then you had in Memphis, you had Dave Brown and Lance Russell still behind the scenes doing stuff. It was just a lot of things going on back and forth. And a lot of he said, she said with all that stuff. So, uh, Jim, for a while there, I guess, did they both? Was there a USWA in both Memphis and Texas? And then I believe Fritz, uh, because of the issues you mentioned, seceded and, and, and became WCCW again. And then he, I guess he lasted for about another year or so, but he couldn't sustain the promotion. And then now, and then G, uh, Global Wrestling formed in Texas. Did I get all that right? Yeah, there was a lot of things happening because whenever USWA essentially took over from WCCW, you saw the pulling down of the banners and all that stuff. And the it was more than just a symbolic removal of the, of the territorial stuff. It was like, we're getting rid of that. It was almost the same circumstances when Shane Douglas threw the Eastern Championship title in the trash, the ECW title, and they rebranded up there. It was one of those things where they were totally going to go USWA and they were putting WCCW to the side. They brought in the famous Renegades Rampage apron and all that stuff. That was all part of the re-solidification that USWA was going to try and go on its own. WCCW aligned with a Northeastern promotion out of Boston, I believe it was. That was ICW up there at that time. I don't know if that was Savoldi's ICW. Yeah, I believe it was. But yes. it turned into a real, it was like WCCIC. It was a big, long name, WCCIC. It was, yeah. And they tried it for a little while, but Fritz just couldn't maintain and eventually had to fold and go under. And a lot of those guys that were closet investors were the ones that went into to the GCW, the Glory uh, Global Wrestling Federation, the GWF down there. And that was going to be based in Dallas. So... Then you got this little clique of friends that was friends with Fritz and all those guys and some of the workers that was down there. They're starting to run Dallas and they're trying to edge Jared out. So eventually Jared just, you know what I mean, circles the wagons in his home city and goes back to doing the USWA strictly out of Memphis. And then Global will rise up down in Dallas. But one of the things that a lot of people don't realize our USWA is one of those underrated territories, but at the time, 
they were putting themselves to be, we mentioned the other three big promotions, and you said it too, Dan, as a fourth big promotion. But at the same time, you also have Eastern up there that's morphing into ECW. This is all happening in the not, you know, I mean, late 80s and mid-90s. Mid because yep. USWA ran from 89, 90, all the way through like 97. They were right. in competition, and that we're talking that's the on the doorsteps of the attitude era to give people like that that aren't in a grasp of the, the time frame. So these two territories were still functioning all the way up into the point where Vince McMahon and the WCW had edged out the AWA. They were done. And USWA was still managing to maintain mostly on just the core of that Memphis audience, man. Like when they called Jerry Lawler the king of Memphis, it was no joke, man. Like that guy owned that town. And he could have ran that promotion there as long as he wanted, which is one of the reasons I'm positive that Vince drew him in because he wanted to just go ahead and finally be done and drop the hammer on him and put the nail in it on the USWA because they were a lot more viable than ECW. And I'm sure that in Vince's eyes. Yeah. And you mentioned Vince bringing him in. That was the talent exchange. Originally the talent exchange agreement they had 91, 92 when he, uh, Jerry uh, Jerry Lawler went to the WWF and a handful of WWF stars, especially some of their up and coming younger talent, started appearing in the USWA. Um, I, before we get back to kind of where we were as far as like litigation and matches, um, what kind of put us a little bit in the history of that exchange, that agreement? With the talent exchange that was going on, what had happened was. With that unification, when they unified those titles in back at that Super Clash match, whenever Jerry Lawler beat Von Erich and they unified those belts, all of a sudden you start to see a filtering through of talent in an exchange from one to the next. And the main thing with it was, if you go back and look at the title histories of that belt, that unified belt, I think Jerry Lawler held that title like 28 times. You basically got Jerry Lawler holding that belt and these other territories are feeding him heels. You know what I mean? That's a lot of what that talent exchange was because early on you see Foley come in and it's Akbar. Um, yeah, General Akbar was coming in and he was bringing like the stable of guys. He was basically using the same formula they did in Mid-South for the baby faces that they had there when he had his army down there. And he brings in all these heels one after another, and it's a constant circulation of guys into the USWA. That's where you see Foley come in early on. And then right as Foley runs his course, he gets into a, a loser leaves town match and loses. And Skandor Akbar, you know what I mean, kicks him out of the little army there. And he leaves the area and goes to work WCW, I believe. But then at that same time, you see the Punisher come in. The Undertaker comes in under the mask as the Punisher, mm -hmm. and he's talking about Skandor Akbar called me and said they need somebody to take out Jerry Lawler and Jerry and Jeff Jarrett and the baby faces that he names out. So you see all these great heels coming in. Kamala makes another return. So most of the talent exchange was heels for Jerry Lawler to to bump off of and fight. I think it's it's interesting you mentioned that that they were the talent exchange was given Jerry Lawler heels because. The USWA didn't have a national market, and it's it's almost the tale of two cities. In WWF, Jerry Lawler was a heel. He was feuding with Bret Hart. He was despised. He'd make you know insult the crowd. Boo, you know, boo hoo. Yeah, the 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 what the Jerry uh, 
Bret Hart was calling him the, the Burger King, and and there was, you know, there was the, he was the, he was this vile heel, and then he'd come back to Memphis and wrestle the same guy, some of the same guys, and he was like you said, literally the king of the city. He was the biggest face the promotions had ever seen. And if you watched local USWA TV and then WWF on Monday nights, you, you were seeing two different worlds. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on how that would have played out. Well, nobody was going to outlive McMahon. I even like, it, it was one of those things he was so like, and I'm not saying that just because he was so much better. He was so much better organized he had that. He had that office. He had all those employees that were doing, taking care of the business end of things, while he was out with his little circus, expanding the, around the country. So I don't think any territory was going to survive McMahon. But like I said before, if there was going to be one that did, Lawler, if Lawler could have unified with Jim Crockett, and those guys could have taken everything from St. Louis all the way across to Virginia, all the way down to Miami, if they could have taken that swath of the Southeast and solidified it, that maybe would have had a, that maybe would have put, you know, I mean, McMahon in the back corner for a little bit because that Southern wrestling crowd is just so strong and they just love the product so much. That's the only way I could ever see either of those territories surviving. But once again, you go back to these major egos, not only in the ring, but in the office, man, you know, these guys just couldn't get along. Even in their own organization, sometimes you hear stories of Lawler and Jarrett bumping heads and about the way things should be ran and how money should be allocated and different things. So it was uh, too much ego and McMahon was too well organized for that ter- for any territory to survive, but especially the USWA. But there was so many great guys that you were talking about the talent exchange. I watched a match earlier today in preparation for all this. And you see guys not only from WWF, but the ECW that came down. Candido was in some of the matches. And I seen a Sandman that was pre-ECW Sandman. And you think of the Sandman, you think of the Metallica song. This was before all that. This was 1990, 91. He was dressed up like a surfer. He came out in a body glove outfit with a surfboard and brought it to the ring and was and was acting like this heel surf guy. And whenever I first seen it, they hadn't even announced him yet. And I'm like, holy shit, is that the Sandman? Because it's pretty, I mean, it's hard to mistake that, guys. Right. Yeah, it's so cool to see the the evolution of the different gimmicks. And then like Harvey Whippleman was one of their heel managers. He was downtown Bruno and they would do this thing where he was supposed to wrestle a match and he would be like, no, I'm uptown Bruno, not downtown Bruno. And he was always bouncing that back and forth. And yeah, it was, and you had Percy Pringle that was there. That was a face. He was a baby face manager. He had the blonde hair and, and everything else. And that interaction between that short time, that he was there with Undertaker was what led to him being pulled to WWF to be Paul Bearer. You know, Undertaker's like, hey, well, there's a guy down there that's a real friggin' mortician, you know? It'd be stupid not to use that guy. But there's so many paths that crossed in that frame of time in that little area. But you had the Fullers that came in for a while too. And they were trying, they like, I don't think they came in as an organization, but I know that Fuller wrestled as a babyface there with Jeff Jarrett and the tag team. And he had the tag team titles there at least three times, you know? So it was like that section of the country was still strong for their local boys. They wanted to see the local boys, you know? 
and there was uh billy travis was one of their local guys that was friends with jeff jarrett and he was like could be likened to the uh ah, from georgia wayne from ferris georgia. Yeah, he used the he used the he eventually used the guitar as his gimmick. But what was the blonde haired baby face from Georgia? His name slips my mind. Big deal. He was a big deal in the territory. Tommy Rich. He's like their Tommy Rich. Local guy, baby face, blonde hair, pretty boy. You know what I mean? Was big in that area, but really didn't make it big on the bigger on the on the nationwide stage. They had a lot of that stuff going on there. That's Eric Embry the same way. Right. He was one of the main guys that was influential in all that stuff. It was him and Pringle that pulled down those WCCW banners. And Embry was like, if you look at Eric Embry, you would be thinking, how is this guy over? You know, because he's not in shape. He talks good on the mic. He's not the best looking guy, but he's their local boy. And in that area, that meant a lot, man. Texas, Tennessee, that was a big deal. Jim, um, and we, we mentioned earlier about Lawler holding the title, the USWA title, so many times. And I was thinking about, um, you know, Dick the Bruiser in WWA and the Sheik in Detroit, where they pretty much had a monopoly on the title. And I, I, I thought of the old, uh, when the Special Delivery Jones, whenever he would lose a match, the, the phrase that Gorilla Monsoon always used was, he went to the well one too many times. Uh, <laughs> do you think that, that maybe if he spread it, spread the wealth a little bit, Jerry Lawler, and didn't hold a title that many times or, you know, for lesser time, do you think that would have uh, extended their, their, you know, their life? Or do you think it was just a matter of, it was, it was just a matter of time with, with Vince McMahon? Yeah, the writing was on the wall for everybody. And I think that just like Bill Watts had his certain formula in Mid-South, Jerry Lawler had that formula there that worked for him. I mean, for God's sake, Jerry Lawler had, away from the wrestling that was on regular weekly programming, he had the Jerry Lawler show, you know? So it's like he had a half-hour show for his for himself on the local TV. So he was, that that was the formula for them, you know what I mean? Even down to the Andy Kaufman gimmick. And that, and we're talking a different scenario, but even down to that, he he knew how to work that town so well and draw those people in so well and if you listen to him on the mic, he is the nastiest babyface. Like they love him like a babyface, but he t he says the worst things about people. He calls them out the best, in the yeah. worst way. You know yeah. what I mean? And I'll tell you something I found really interesting. I was watching other footage, and they were talking about the title. And he's sitting there, and he's holding the title over his shoulder. And he goes, "You know," he goes, "I'm the only real world champion." He goes, I defend this belt all over the world. He goes, this belt is defended. We defend it in Japan. We defend it everywhere. He goes, a lot of these other promotions, and he kind of got this heel smirk. He goes, a lot of these other promotions want to make you think that their guy's the greatest. He goes, let's just call it like it is. He said, you got your Hulk Hogan. He said, he's a company champion. He said, you have to work in that company in order to fight him for their title. And then he called out Flair. He said, Ric Flair is the same way. He said, he ought to be in the NWA to wrestle Ric Flair for their title. He goes, I'm no company champion. And he slapped the belt. He goes, I'm a real world champion. He goes, I'll fight anybody anywhere for this title. And I thought that was really cool because he's trying to like separate themselves, like put themselves above, you know what I mean? And to try and set themselves apart. He just knew how to work that product so well. You know what I mean? That, that timeline. 
it was great. Yeah, I think uh, people kind of lose track throughout his uh, modern times of just how popular he was. You mentioned the Jerry Lawler show. Don't forget in, uh, was it 1998, 99, when he, and he filed the run for mayor and pretty much did nothing and still came in third. You know, not didn't campaign, didn't do much of anything, and and still still came in tw- third of fifteen because just name alone, screw yeah, it. Yeah, you could be a writer. Yeah, let's, let's give Jerry Lawler a chance to run the city. <laughs> but like we're WCCW at this time is like we say it's folded, but it was almost like that. That promotion almost had like not only the family personal type of black cloud, but a financial type of black cloud. They ran. Uh, Ken, I want to say Ken Mantell, maybe was his name. Ken, man, it slips my mind. I'm terrible with names. He was the booker down there. Was the guy that was the referee. He was the booker down there for WCCW. And while he was doing that stuff, they had a good run. Gary Hart and all that stuff was in and out. But as the years waned on, and these big guys left the area, Foley leaves the area. Punisher, Taker leaves out. Steve Austin was down there. Another name that we have yet to bring up that was influential in not only the booking, but the early years of USWA was Chris Adams. Huge baby face Mm -hmm. in WCCW. So you see an exodus out of Dallas at that time for guys that are going to where the money's at because you're not going to loyalty is only going to pay your bills and put food on your plate for so long before you have to leave, which is yet another reason that Vince ended up winning the big game. But when WCCW fell out, like you see all these guys go to USWA, but not only that, you see them going to Eastern and you see them going trickling to AWA. Well, it was still a little bit going on up there before it fell out as well. It's just like the seeing the foundations of the territorial system crumble in this one promotion yeah speaking of crumble it's kind of a direct uh direct symbolism you, you talked about uh the, the match between it was a cage match between phil hickerson and uh eric embry and phil hickerson doing the 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 pie chew he gimmick at the time and when the match was over uh, we benny mentioned it before we started recording uh Percy Pringle, who you talked about being the babyface, tore the W, literally tore the WCCW yes. banner down, kind of a symbolic, you know, throwing the throwing the title in the trash like this. This promotion is dead. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Was that was that as as sim- symbolic as it could be, or was that kind of a a statement that was more of a wink and a nod than anything else? Well, that was where symbolism met reality, man, because they tore down the banners for television and to show, look, this is a new start. But not only that, it went beyond that. They took out everything that was WCCW related in the office, all the bills and and posters and any kind of signage that was related to WCCW went. The ring apron went. They changed the colors of the ropes. You know what I mean? Like everything that they could do, they did do. They was like in Egypt when a new pharaoh took over and they took the chisels and hammers to the old guy's faces. You know what I mean? They tried to do everything they could to, to erase away the fact that WCCW was ever a part of the USWA. You know what I mean? And like whenever I said earlier that it was almost like an invasion, when that first started, you had Bruce Pritchard and Eric Embry doing this thing where they were coming in as the Texans. They kept calling them the tell, here comes the Texans. You know what I'm saying? And this was right at that time when they were pulling away 
and they were trying to separate themselves. There was a lot of animosity and hard feelings there, you know. But yeah. yeah, that was way more than just symbolic. That was that was a literal burning of the flag for those guys. And then they put the Renegades rampage. And I gotta say, I know it, it seems minute and a little superficial, but I love that I love that apron of, of all the old territory aprons that you see. When I see that Renegades Rampage apron, it just makes me smile because I know there's gonna be some some color or some fireballs, or there's gonna be some kind of crazy lawler gimmick happening. You know, you're just really good stuff. Jim, uh, going back to Chris Adams. Now, he is one of my all-time favorites, and I, I believe he was the originator of the super kick. Uh, phenomenal performer. I think he was very good on the mic. I could never understand why didn't he become one of the, like, the very top stars. He really, to me, he had it all. We can absolutely talk some Chris Adams, but while you mentioned the super kick, there was a promotion, a angle that they did. It was, I think it was, it was one of the, it was Gary Hart, may have been Kabuki, or uh, Kendo Nagasaki, maybe. But it was like, whose kick is stronger? The side thrust kick of the Asian or the super kick of Chris Adams? And they would do the whole gimmick on the match. They would try to both hit it at the same time. And yeah, he like, he was using that prevalent before HBK, before the young Hartley boys or whatever the hell you want to call them before the young bucks ever thought about using it 20 times a match. Chris Adams was knocking people on their ass with that super kick early on, but he was such a great influence on a lot of guys. He got Steve Austin trained him up in the business and we'll talk about them in a second. Their lives intermingled a lot more than most people's do. But yeah, Chris Adams had a lot of those angles and he was, he baby faced it. He did an angle one time in WCCW where he was got, I can't remember if he took a fireball in the eye or if he took a, a, like a, like a foreign object to the eye, but he wore this eye patch and he wore it religiously in the ring, out of the ring, on the road, around the boys, all that shit and played the game all the way through and kept it that way to where he had that crowd so hot to get revenge on those on the person that had blinded him. I can't remember who it was in WCCW that had done that. But that was the, the big angle that he ran. But he was so smart for the business. But like so many other people during the late 80s that came up, this was the 80s. It was the party 80s. And this we're talking about Texas, Dallas, Texas, a major city just on the other side of the Mexican border. There was, we're, we're just going to call it like it is. There was no shortage of drugs, no shortage of cocaine, no shortage of things that you wanted to do in the nightlife. He was notoriously good, close friends with Gino Hernandez. And we all, like, well, I shouldn't say we all, but the majority of us in the wrestling historical know, realize how that all turned out and, and what was going on there. So he just had a lot of, a lot of baggage that he was trying to carry around. He was trying to work through a lot of stuff. And you can only take on so much of that negative stuff, no matter how good of a worker you are, before it starts to impact your career in bookings, in different things, how you interact with the office from one territory to the next. So, but I remember, and I've talked about this story before when I, when I referenced, the, I always tell a Dick Murdoch story, but whenever I was in middle school, the USWA came up through, like it was with the, out of Memphis area, and they came to Evansville, which is almost going right across where I live through Southern Illinois. And they did a, a show at the my, at my middle school, and Chris Adams was a, 
like the baby face main guy there that night. But Dick Murdoch got into a yelling match with this old lady in the front row. And it was like, you're number one, basically. She's giving him the bird. And Murdoch played it so well. But getting to see guys like Chris Adams live at, an er- at a young age was very influential on me. And I'll be honest, I remember talking to my parents that night. They're, my uncle and my dad was there. And I told them, because it was in our middle school, the middle school that I was attending at that time. I was like, man, they're in the boys' locker room. I know how. To, I mean, I know where that's at. I'd love to be able to go back there and meet those guys. And my dad was always a follow-the-rules type person, which is maybe why I'm just the opposite. <laughs> he was like, no, no, we can't do that. But if it had just been me and my uncle, I guarantee I would have shinnied my ass back there somehow to meet Chris Adams and the rest of those guys. It was just he had that kind of pull and he had that kind of attraction in the ring and out of the ring. He was just so charismatic. You, you talked earlier, you, you mentioned that some of the names coming in and out of the USWA. Uh, obviously, you talked about the or the Undertaker when he was under the mask, Mick Foley. Uh, but I think going back to, to Chris Adams, that one of the names he brought in that cut their teeth in the USWA was a young Steve Williams who would be become go on to become Steve Austin. And uh, I, I think, I mean, th- there's, there's a story there we'll get into in a second between Adams and Austin and, and some personal stuff, but I don't think the USWA gets enough credit. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on it for people like Mark Calloway and Mick Foley and some of the biggest stars of the nineties came from there and i i think it kind of gets they kind of get lost in the shuffle where history doesn't seem to remember them until crockett and wcw or ecw before and i was wondering if you had any thoughts on that well i 100 percent agree with what you're saying they absolutely do get lost in the shuffle as a foundational and educational territory for these guys so many guys came through there everybody that was a name in the late attitude era into the early 2000s everybody that was a big name that wasn't a vince mcmahon original like the rock but everybody that was a big name came through there you know what i mean like i mentioned earlier with the sandman he basically carried ecw for a while for as a champion and then chris candido came through there jacqueline came through there as miss texas she had a hell of a run with the dirty white girl the dirty white boy i don't know how many people are familiar with the Smoky Mountain Wrestling? You also had an interchange there. You had a connection there. Yep. There's so many. There's so many things that ping on the radar with W with the USWA territory that, like you just now, like you brought up, people just don't realize that it. it's like, oh yeah, that happened there. Oh yeah, they were there. Oh yeah, this was going on down there. Jim uh, Cornette went through there right at the very beginning of the territory with the fabulous ones and they ran and got the tag titles like the second time they were there and ran a really good angle with Lawler and those guys where they were trying to cripple Lawler and all this stuff and again Lawler playing the baby face angle to a heel tag team if that's what it takes (laughs) but yeah like uh, it was there was so many people that were foundational to the business that we all grew up watching on every Monday night that had back associations with this company. I think you, you kind of didn't do enough credit to you. You mentioned uh, the, the tie-in with Smoky Mountain and Dirty White Boy without mentioning the pinnacle of his career being 
T.L. Hopper, the wrestling plumber <laughs> gimmick that Vince saddled him with. I mean, you, you're, when you peak as a wrestling plumber, you know, bringing a plunger to the ring, you, you can't go back to the territories after that. There's just nothing left. This should have been a tag team with him and Drosy. Drosy could have brought the dumpster and he could have brought the plunger. Yeah, they could have been the handyman. We're booking hey. it. <laughs> a little bit too late, but you know, I, I mentioned with the uh, with the tie-in with Chris Adams. Uh, it, obviously, the story that that kind of does get a little bit of talk is uh, Jeannie Clark, uh, Chris Adams' then girlfriend, who was worked as a valet with Steve Austin, and actually, she's the one. Uh, eventually, they would marry. Um, again, Chris Adams joining the very the long list of of wrestlers who end up booking their own divorce, and it, it, they, she was credited with cr- giving him the Stone Cold moniker. And I'm curious uh, that kind of storyline because that feud really was one of the few the the feud between gentleman Chris Adams and and Steve Williams was one of the few that really expanded beyond the territory. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on what it was about that feud, be it the pure wrestling, be it the gripping story, the fact that this was early Steve Austin on the, well, Steve Williams, but would become Steve Austin on the mic. You know, you could start to see little pieces. You sent Benny and I some, some clips or some recommendations earlier. I think it was either yesterday or earlier today where you can see little pieces of, wow, this guy is going to be, I could see where the stone cold came from. You absolutely could. And I was wondering if it was that, if it was the grip, like what was it about that particular feud that kind of was one of the few moments of the USWA that really left the territory and and gets remembered nationally? You've got, there's only been a really, a handful of times in the wrestling business where this has happened on a, where like life imitates art in the wrestling business all the time. But there's only been a handful of times when you've really had the girlfriend situation happen like this and we're talking edge matt hardy lita um kevin sullivan benoit and woman you know what i mean with all these and you got chris adams who was with Jeannie clark at that time was her last name and i'm going to say Jeannie's a good friend i if you have a chance i'm going to go ahead and pop her now before we get into the story she's got a book called through the shattered glass I recommend that anyone who wants to read a good story about trials and tribulations in the wrestling business and looking and getting through the other side of it should read this book. It's very uplifting. It's a great story. It tells all about her relationships and and the dark side through Chris that she got drug into all that too because being associated right there with it and being around it, you're going to do it as well. So they had a dark relationship a little bit. And whenever Steve came into the situation, it was Steve Williams to start. And just as a side note, it, Adam said, well, there's already Dr. Death with Steve Williams. You need to change that. So they worked out this stunning thing and, and they started running with that. But Jeannie was managing Austin. So you've got Jeannie coming to the ring with Austin and uh, – Adams always had a girl with him. I, his wife, Tony, was with him, I believe, as his valet. But, like, you had that dynamic. So now they're working together. Okay, well, they're traveling together. Well, maybe they were traveling in two separate cars. So now that puts them alone time. The more alone time you get, the more that division's going to be. It's just, it's, it's, not, it's relationship shit. That's not wrestling shit. That's, that's human nature. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Put them together long enough, something's going to happen. There's going to be an attraction. 
And they ended up getting married and having a couple kids. But it was Jeannie that gave him the idea for the Stone Cold name. And they were the story, the way it goes, that I'm aware of it is he had a cup of coffee and they were sitting there talking about this ringmaster and how it wasn't working and he didn't know what he was going to do and where things were going to go. And he was going to have to call Vince. And she told him to drink his coffee before it got stone cold because she's your she's British. And that's just one of their little little phrases. Mm -hmm. And that clicked, I guess. I don't I'm, I, I would only have to speculate that he said it out loud or one of them had to have said it out loud and heard the way that it sings and then i'm sure he was right on the phone to whoever you know what i mean getting that on down the line but even in these in these videos that i were that you talked about that i that i sent to you guys you would see him do it like as, as a babe as a heel he would like get the other guys down and be talking shit to him and he'd be like they would throw a move and he'd get out of the way and he'd go eh, eh. And you could just hear it, you know what I mean? Or he would wag his finger at him and, and do one of these nah, 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 like that. And it was almost like the, it was reminiscent of the Brian Pillman movie reel that they would do in WCW as the Hollywood Blondes. He had that in-your-face type of attitude early on, you know? And you could, knowing where what was to become, you could see the flashes of it in the early, early Steve Williams. It was, man... USWA is such an underappreciated and an underutilized and undervalued territory from the fans. I'm positive that wrestlers are watching this stuff and going to school, positive. But the fans probably are less knowledgeable of it, which is another reason I'm so thankful that you guys have taken the time to, to do these territory talk pieces because we really are keeping this stuff alive. But let me get a drink of water. Yeah, the Chris Adams situation was, it was, he was so over. And they had the kendo stick. Him and Austin had the famous come as you are match where Steve Austin comes down to the ring in his football helmet and shit and gets in the ring. And uh, Chris Adams is in blue jeans with a kendo stick and they're going at it. And Austin's putting his head down like, you know what I mean? Like some kind of crazy bull, like that episode of the Married with Children when Al had the coat rack and he lowered his <laughs> lowered his head like the mighty elk. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was just so much really good stuff that happened there. You know what I mean? And it wasn't all gold and glory. You know, like there was some guys that went through there and you'd just scratch your head and be like, Well, he's not getting out of this territory, but he's getting some TV time, so he did more than I did. So you can't hate on it too much. You know what I mean? You can only hate on the jobber guys so much. Because they were in the room when great things were happening, whether or not they did great in the business or not, they were still in the in the small, you know what I mean? They were there when it was going on. And there were yep. so many guys that went through that territory that did great things later on in the business. Monumental things. Changed the business. Jim, um, I watched several, or at least parts of several episodes in, in preparation for the program. And uh, as far as announcers go, now we had uh, Shane Russell Lance's son on our show a couple of months ago, and he was he was phenomenal talking about his dad. Lance was always one of my. I mean, he, he and Gordon Soley are one and two for me. Um, when the episodes that I saw were they featured Dave Brown, I didn't see Lance. Now, uh, I always thought Dave Brown was very unheralded as Lance's, uh, you know, second, but I, I thought he was quite good by himself. So um, was was Lance gone by then? You had a similar situation whenever Jim Ross pulled away from the announce and due to 
like health issues, but he was still in the back on the mic and those guys' ears helping him out. Lance Russell was in a in a like behind the scenes role as an agent, I guess you would say, or a coach for the announce team. Dave Brown took on this he took on the lead role. He took he for a long time, whenever you're like there are seminal guys in the business that are foundational announcers, right? Solely, Russell, Okerland. Uh, for me, Boyd Pierce in Bob, Mid South. Bob Cottle, maybe in uh, Bob Cottle. Yep. Bob Cottle would definitely be in that. But that's the that's what I'm saying. Like these are the guys that you look to, and you're like, oh, you're going to listen to what he says, and no matter who's sitting in the chair next to them, you're going to listen to what he says. So as long as Lance Russell was there, I don't think Dave Brown ever would have got the the spotlight that he deserved. And I think once they let him run with it, he had several little co-hosts that came in and out, you know. But I think once they let him do his thing. He's a great speaker and he knows how he knows when not to speak. And as an announcer and an interviewer and stuff like that, that's a gift in itself, knowing when to to be quiet and allow the talent to do their thing, you know? And he would feed them well, he would give them give them the lines. And I was watching a thing where it was just one of those small things like the guy came out that was a buddy of Eric Embry's, and it was gonna be a turkey match. They were gonna it was Lawler, Jeff Jarrett, Fuller. And uh, I can't remember who the fourth was, but they were going to be wrestling. It was going to be Lawler and Embry, and it was going to be a turkey match, and whoever lost was going to get turkified. So it was like it was like they're going to be turkeyfied. So that's what Fuller said. So like in that tennis, that great Tennessee stud accent that he's got, and then so this guy comes out, this jabroni of of Eric Embry's comes out, and it's like the same gimmick that they pulled in Bots. You know what I mean? Like they would. Uh, they called him down, and Lawler was like, well, come on down here. We'll show you. We'll tell you what's going on. We'll explain to you what it means. And they got him down there, and Lawler armbars the guy. And Jeff Jarrett pulls out the like the Mrs. Butterworth and douses him down. And then they throw feathers all over him. And Bob Robert Fuller's like, now nah, you've been turkey-fied. Like, and you know what I mean? And so it was just that gimmicky, fun stuff that they did. You know what I mean? But that, And whenever this was happening, the announcer was like, he knew where to be, and he knew where not to be. When the interview started, he was standing in amongst them, holding the microphone. And by the time it was all over, he had worked his way around to the side where all you could see was his hand in the microphone coming in from the edge of the screen. You know what I mean? They, he knew great announcers know when not to be in the way. You know right. what I mean? And know when to be quiet. He was like that. But like I said, originally, the, the very, very first announced team was Mark Lawrence and Frank Dusick. Frank Dusick was a wrestler in WCCW. He'd gotten injured and went behind the tape, the announce table. And Mark Lawrence, I don't know if any, if you guys, I'm sure you are, but I don't know if the, the audience is super familiar with Mark Lawrence. He was the voice for WCCW. And this guy is kind of like Ray Romano meets Howard Cosell in his delivery. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's got that, that, he just sounds like I, every time I hear the man, I think Howard Cosell, but I see him and I think Ray Romano. He was fun to watch, but he was super dry. And like Dusick, Dusick wasn't helping that announced team at all. So like, I'm sure he was probably a nice guy, but he was, let's be honest, he was a shits on the mic. So they eventually switched over. And especially when they went to Memphis full time, they left all that behind. And then that's whenever they were doing the Texans gimmick that I talked about earlier, the, little mind mini invasion i'll give you an idea of how far 
we've fallen. The Pro Wrestling Insider Announcer of the Year 2021 was Excalibur from oh, AEW. No. <laughs> so that that that's what that's what uh, is the pinnacle of greatness today. So at least it wasn't Michael Cole. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I, uh, we talked about all the wrestling this weekend. I think the biggest surprise for me despite appearances, returns, some of the matches that were very good. I did, I'll admit, I did watch WrestleMania, and Michael Cole was actually very decent, and that was probably a bigger surprise to me than some, wow. the outcome of some of those matches. But um, When I saw the lineup for night one, I was like, look, I'm not a fan of the current shit, and I knew that there was going to be any flippy floppy. I was going to, like, I fast-forwarded through most of the Rey Mysterio, the Mysterio match, and let me just I'll comment on that just here in a second, and I'll tell you why. But overall, it was a good show, and I'm not – and for somebody like me that's constantly talking about how great the old days are and how this new generation is looking like the shits, I got to say, Pat McAfee and uh, – what's his name? Austin uh, Theory. Austin Theory. They did good. Like, I was very surprised, and we were talking about it earlier. You had Rip Rogers, and I know Rip, and he's a, a funny old bastard. If he trained McAfee, you know for sure that McAfee not only went through how to take a bump and when and why, but how to sell it to. You know what I mean? But you can't ignore the athleticism. I mean, it doesn't matter who the person is and how much you like their what they're doing. He flat-footed from the ring to the top turnbuckle, man. That's four feet. You know, yeah, and, and then and, hit the, and then hit the move. And to think he was, uh, you know, he took some flack because he was a punter when he was in the NFL, and that's usually the position that people associate with being like the, you know, the the weakling little buddy of the team. Right. And and here, I mean, you don't realize how strong your legs have to be to to be a, that kind of kicker. And he stayed in shape, and he trained, and and I was impressed uh, by a lot of that, but. I, you know, I, like I said, you talk about announcing that was my biggest shock of the, of the weekend was Michael Cole did, did very well. Usually, Benny, when, when we used to talk more regularly about some of the, the earlier WWE product, Michael Cole sucks tends to be a note we had a lot of. But never, never, you'd never hear if we had if podcasting was a thing back in the back in the territory days. I don't think we'd spend a second of it complaining about announcing. That's for sure. No. Let me just pop McAfee, just I, just one more little bit about that top rope jump. If you remember back when Kurt Angle was still running strong, he did the little gimmick where he ran to the second turnbuckle, then to the top, and then did the belly-to-belly suplex yes. off the top rope. And that mm-hmm. was a big pop for him every time he did it, and this was Kurt Angle. So this other guy here is going right from apron to yeah. the top rope, showing and, just as much athleticism. And, you know, but, but before we get back to uh... – Back to to the territory. Uh, you talked about the Pat McAfee match. Uh, it's I don't know whether it's it's a testament or just fun or wh- however you want to word it. But after Pat McAfee's match, when he had the impromptu fight with Vince McMahon, when McMahon took his shirt off and had the the old black wife beater from his Stone Cold days underneath of it, that was that when the crowd saw that and realized like, hey, this guy's about to get in the ring. That was probably the biggest pop of the one of the biggest pops of the of the weekend. Period. Until and, I'm sorry, yeah, I was going to say until until that glass broke and Ugh. you knew what was about to happen. He bled it so well, McMahon, he did. taking the undoing his cuffs. And the cuffs on his shirt, 
and looking back and forth and acting the feign in the entry into the ring. And then and then when he finally I, and I tell you, I don't know if this was a negotiational rib on the part of Austin or if this was one of those scenarios where McMahon is still so full of Vince McMahon machismo that if Austin's going to come back and do a match, so am I. But I could also see Austin being like, I want, because I think we discussed this, like I've, I'm sure the number was in the millions, but Austin was like, I want X amount of money for this match and your ass has got to come back out and do something too. That's the only way I'll come back. Uh, and you uh, know Vince would sell it. He would be like, okay, no problem. Right. Give, give, me, give me $5 million for a match. And or four million for Saturday in a match and a million for an appearance on Sunday, but I have to stun you. That's, yeah, that's how it went. Yeah. Oh, but whenever he took that off, and yes, the black wife beater, I popped and marked out like a young guy in the attitude era because and I'll tell you, I don't go to the gym, which is obvious. I'm a chunky motherfucker. Vince is in better shape at his age than I am now. <laughs> I give I give him I give him credit. We talked about it uh very towards the very beginning of the run of our show, Benny, uh, during COVID, the, the COVID empty arena era, um, McMahon had a couple of appearances and he looked terrible. His sunken in sick. His voice sounded real gravelly. Like we talked about it about, you know, 14, 15 months ago was that he, he, he seemed sick and they hadn't released anything about it. And we were wondering like, Oh, you know, is there something wrong with him? Is he, he he's for the first time ever. He looked and sounded like an old man when they did the, uh, uh, the, the triple H, um, uh, honorary thing a couple years, uh, what about a year and change ago, they did the empty arena stuff. Um, it seemed that, but when he came out and he had the walk and the talk and, and it build up to the, to the, uh, some of those backstage segments he was doing with Austin theory, like whatever was wrong with him a year ago, he seems to have gotten better. So good on him because he looks better now than he right. did a couple years ago right. when, when I first started thinking, wow. Cause you remember he'd been off TV for a couple years, and it's like, holy crap, Vince McMahon got old while he was gone. And now he comes out and he looks he looks young. Well, not young, but he looks fit, healthy. He's, I mean, 80 years old. He's in better shape than 95% of this country. Like, that's, you know, that's that uh, good for him. That's all I can say. It's good for him. And still has the worst sell of the stunner I've ever oh, seen. So, right. he, he, that, that, that flop. I, I will say, as far as WrestleManias go, that gives Donald Trump and Linda McMahon a run for their money as far as bad stunner sells. But I was I would love to have seen in the middle of all that, whenever he was no having such a hard time selling it, it would have been great just to see Austin stop and paintbrush and then stun him again. You know what I mean? Be like, God damn old man, come on yeah, now. Like, yeah, you know what? Austin for, for his for his uh credit, he recovered and, and and was able to kind of bounce him off the ropes and try it again and it worked out great. I think the crowd didn't didn't care too much. Didn't escape Mick Foley. He he was quick to comment on Twitter about how how terrible that was. So good for him. But speaking of, of booking as we kind of circle back and, and wrap up tonight, the, the USWA, you mentioned, they kind of started to decline money night wars, peak wrestling USWA. There was no ECW's growth. This was mid, mid nineties, 1997. There was nothing left. They have a, a show, <clears throat> excuse me. They, they have a show at the, uh, uh, in Memphis, which was the heart and soul of the territory that drew less than 400 fans, uh, falling apart arena. Just, just, uh, that was it. Paint writing was on the wall. 1997, they were done. And I'm wondering as we, as we wrap up, kind of do a little fantasy booking. Is there anything you think the USWA could have done? Uh, you mentioned earlier how, if they had been able to unify with Crockett, 
But do you think there's anything the USWA could have done to survive and be that third, fourth major promotion that they were hoping for? They couldn't have. It's not only the fact that they couldn't compete with Vince McMahon's pockets on a talent level, on them like the lower guys on the talent level. When he when the King went and when the King left, that that's sucked the wind out of Memphis. You know what I mean? Like we talked earlier about how he's still able to go down and work even while he was with the WWF and draw money. But him not being on that television, not being on that doing that product full bore all the time it sucked the life out of that place you know what i mean and then the same thing can be said for guys like taker that eventually got the phone call to come up or you know what i mean to come up there they couldn't they weren't going to be able to give those guys the kind of pushes and the kind of stuff that they needed to facilitate the launching of these careers the way that it should be done and the wrestlers i'm sure saw that so which is why they went to bigger companies you know what i mean and Austin left USWA, went to WCW, didn't get used, got so and you see you see that Stone Cold character starting in USWA. We talked about that earlier. You see the seeds of that. He leaves USWA, goes to WCW. When he leaves USWA, he's a fairly big deal, right? He gets to WCW, he gets underutilized, he gets fucking frustrated, and then they he leaves there and goes to ECW, and then that's when the Stone Cold character really starts to morph but all these guys like when undertaker was doing punisher he was walking the ropes and they're talking on uswa man look at that guy he's walking the ropes like the spoiler like this big guy brings us a different move every time he's out here you know so it was you just saw the evolution of these guys and like like i said earlier after the fact after we saw where it went to be able to go back and look at it early on, it's, it just makes me smile to see that stuff, you know. And I encourage everyone, there's a lot of footage on YouTube. I encourage everyone to get on YouTube and search the USWA archives and check that out, you know what I mean, and, and look for all that stuff. Benny, as we wrap up, do you have any final thoughts for the night, for the conversation? Yeah, I, I mean, I... Although it didn't last very long, I mean, it lasted pretty much into the late 90s, uh, you know, which is a full, like, you know, almost 15 years after Vince McMahon bought the WWE. And to, to have lasted that long really is a, is a testament to how good the territory was. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, people, oh, go ahead. Whenever we first started, I know it was probably... It was probably hard to follow a lot of the different because I was moving through it quickly, but it was such muddy waters as to who was ownership of this and who was ownership of that. I think Jerry Jarrett was 60-40 is how he was able to maintain and pull everything back into Memphis and really get the USWA built up. But it was there was so much stuff happening and it happened at such a fast pace. It it, it muddies the waters a little bit, but it's still one of those one of those promotions that needs to be looked at, and an unsung territory in the territorial system, and one of the last two operating. Yeah, and I think that's something that kind of gets lost in the shuffle, is that, but you know, people think WWF they picture early WrestleMania, Paul Hogan, Randy Savage, those 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 moments, and don't realize that. That some of the territories were still running strong 
10 years later. And it wasn't until the mid late nineties when, I mean, you know, I, I was, I was already, you know, had been a wrestling fan for years and, and I know you guys are, are Benny, you're, like I say, you're only a couple months older than I am and right, you've been exactly. around for, you know, but I mean, you get guys that, that, that they, they don't think about it. They, they kind of think about, you know, WrestleMania 1980s. That's it. WWF's nationwide Crockett trickles in a little later and that's it. And it's like, no, you still had viable territory shows. And now today, today, uh, you know, uh, with with the independent scene being what it is and YouTube and and a lot of independent shows being able to have uh, be it Patreon, be it, um, you know, independent marketing sites like websites like Pro Wrestling Tees and stuff like that, where YouTube, obviously you have promotion. It's it's almost easier to make a living on the indie scene now than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago, because they're, they're, it's kind of in, in what we would consider indie wrestling is sort of coming back in a more in a bigger scene as as the the giants and the patriarchs fail that i mean that the, they were just talking about uh this morning i was reading the monday night raw following wrestlemania exceeded two million viewers it was the first time raw's reached that number in ages and it's like monday night wars you mentioned the monday night wars raw was six to eight million and that was n- not what 25 years ago so, I mean, here we are excited. Oh, my God, two million people. Like, well, that's, you know, six yeah. million wrestling fans that are watching wrestling somewhere else. There are so many, and I, it's hard to throw out these big numbers, but it, I've hundreds of thousands of wrestling fans that are from our age group are so disenchanted with the business right now that every once in a while, whenever they do turn their head to look like they did at WrestleMania to see what was going on with Austin, you're going to see that them numbers surge. You know what I mean? You're going to see things like that happen as these guys, these bigger guys make their last hurrah. But let me, before we, before we leave, let me just say as, as part of the importance of the USWA and what that territory represents, if you look at, it's the evolution of the business itself. You had the original territorial system that didn't have any schools attached at all, where you learned on the road, you learned the hard way, you learned from the veterans, you learned by doing the business. Then you move on to the USWA, Smoky Mountain, where you've got Ohio Valley, where you've got promotions in small territorial uh, areas that have schools attached where the school becomes a more important part of it. Now you move on. Then, then that slowly but surely the territories are moving away and the school aspect of it's coming in. And then you move on, you out of OVW, go to Florida Championship Wrestling, and then that morphs in to the Performance Center. Now you have none of the territorial aspect and it's basically a sports combine. You know what I mean? So USWA and Smoky Mountain and OVW are, a ter- are an integral step in that evolution that a lot of people forget about because they only ever think about OBW. You know what I mean? USWA is lost in that fray. Sure. But it was right. part territory, part school, part expansion. You know what I mean? There was so many things happening. That's one of the reasons that it was able to live as long as it did, in my opinion. But I think that's it gets overlooked. They were part of the evolution of the way the businesses, the young people are brought up in the business, you know? Absolutely. Can't can't argue with that. Now, at the top of the show, I mentioned, Jim, your uh, reason we did the USWA today. You have your Pro Wrestling Stories article on the USWA, part of your territory series. Uh, 
I'll give you the, the final thought before we sign off on the night. What, what else can we expect from you coming up on pro wrestling and uh, your, your writings? So the territory the wrestling territory series is expansive and it, it encompasses every major territory that was in the United States. We've done this think This is the sixth, but we're not taking it at any specific order, but all we still have just throw some names out there. The funks, the Blanchards, in Texas, we still haven't touched on that yet. We've still got some California stuff to look at. There's still Indianapolis. There's and then extensive chapters on the evolution of Jim Crockett promotions from Jim Crockett's family all the way through WCW, as well as in WWE with uh, what was that? The golden, uh, the golden man. I can't think of it off the top of my head. It was uh, the beginnings of their little trip, their little triad that went all the way through Vince and all the way through Vince Sr. and all that. So a lot of stuff to come in the future. And I appreciate everybody that takes time to read those things. And it, it's really a passion. And like we talked about, it's keeping history alive. It's more than just, oh, the good old days and remember when and all that stuff. It's you got to remember where you came from in order to make sure that the future looks bright. You know, you can't just you can't forget about these things. So every time that fans, young workers in the business, go to school, man, on this stuff. Don't just take it for granted. Seek it out, you know. And I'm I'm very thankful to to have that historian type position there. I, I really like it. Yeah, well said. And I mean, that's part of the tagline of our show is celebrating wrestling storied past. You can't. I love you I love this show, man. I'm so thankful for. For you guys, not not only for the territory talk that we do, but for the guests that you bring on and the family member guests that you bring on. These are the forgotten parts of the business that people need to hear about, because just like we were talking earlier, even though a jobber person might be a jobber person, they're still in the room when big things were going on. These people's families lived through this stuff, you know, and anytime you guys bring them on as guests, it's always a, a bright spot. And I appreciate that from you. Well, that's that's high praise. We appreciate it. And, you know, we, we continue to, to move along. Like I said, this is the first episode of season three and we got a lot of good stuff coming up this year and we'll keep trying to tell the <clears throat> excuse me, tell the good stories and uh, get get the hear, hear them. Because, I mean, Benny, uh, you know, unfortunately, we've been doing this less than two years and we've already lost the, the you know, so much. Uh, the wrestling business has lost so much since we started the show. And you just have to you have to get those stories out there before the history, you know, wins and history wins in the end. Time time goes over all all men. So, well, Jr. says father time doesn't do any jobs. Exactly. Well, <laughs> Jim, uh, you're, you're Jim Phillips, your works on pro wrestling stories, as is uh, Benny Scala's, as is some of mine. So uh, for Jim Phillips, uh, for the BS Express himself, Benny Scala. I'm Dan Sebastiano. Have a good night, everyone, and we will see you next time we're in the ring. Thank you, brothers.